I'm looking forward to the Memorial Day picnic because we're going to be having a water seed spitting contest again. Last time I got edged out by Louis Atrondo, but I've been practicing. He actually only beat me because he's bounced. But I'm not bitter. So come one, come all, and let's see what you got, huh? Let's see what you got. 3,500 years ago, God reached down to pluck a people out of slavery. Never before has a nation been rescued in total like the people of Israel were rescued when God delivered them from the bondage in Egypt. He plucked them out of servitude, delivering them into their own promised land. He went before them, defeated their enemies, and granted a land of milk and honey to them as their eternal possession. He constituted them a kingdom of priests, according to Exodus 19 and verse 6. And he placed them at the crossroads of the world. Literally, the Bible calls it the navel of the world. It's a fascinating place that God chose for his covenant people. For there, along that rocky ridge of Palestine run two major trade routes connecting the breadbasket of the ancient world in Egypt with the emerging civilizations of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. There God placed His people and He constituted them a separate nation. He set them apart in, in their dress, in their diet, in their customs, and most importantly, in their religion. There, as they lived along the trade route, the ancient peoples would come and go, and they had to pass directly by the people of God. They encountered the religion of the one true God. They were His witnesses to the world. Fast forward a couple of millennia to the time of Messiah. Where Jesus Christ, in his last words to his new covenant people, said, Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them about me. What a dramatic change of events the Great Commission represents. For ancient Israel, it was come and see, for us, it is go and tell who God is, and what He has done. This dramatic shift in mission strategy for God that characterizes the Christian religion necessitates that its forms and its patterns are such that they have to be flexible so they can infiltrate and integrate into the various cultures of the world. No longer can it be monolithic, but it now has to be able to go here and there and everywhere 
to reach people groups from one end of this planet to the other. All types of societies, all kinds of cultures have to be able to be infiltrated with this gospel message. And it has to be able to be done in a way that the essence of the message is not lost. We serve a great missionary God. A great missionary God. Some years ago, when I was in seminary, a a Greek professor who was a favorite of mine had a saying that I've often reflected upon in the years to follow. And his saying was that every society, listen to this, every society has a tendency to interpret the New Testament through the grid of its own cultural and political structure. It's a fascinating statement. That we read the New Testament through our eyes of our own culture and our own politics. And we read into it our life experience rather than read out of it what it has to say to us. This is a challenge. This is a challenge for all of us is to strip away our our cultural encrustments and to see the Word of God for what it really is and what He is really saying to us. I've thought about this, as I say, quite a bit, and I really do think He's on to something. I can remember back to the year 2004 when Carol and I visited the great nation of India. We were there in November of 2004. 2004 was a U.S. presidential election year. We voted by absentee ballot before we left and arrived in India to see a U.S. presidential election played out on the pages of Indian newspapers. And it was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Perhaps you remember back, that was the election that took 36 days and a U.S. Supreme Court decision to finally settle the outcome of that. You remember the hanging Chad kind of thing. What fascinated me among other things, was to read in the newspapers the day after the election one of the most comprehensive explanations of the U.S. Electoral College that I had ever read. I would suggest to you that the Indians know more about how the U.S. Electoral College works than most of you do. It's fascinating. The other thing that stuck out to me was the number of Indian Christians who in private conversation would come to Carol or I And ask this kind of question. They would say, we have heard that George Bush is a Christian, a born again Christian. And we would say, yes, we have heard that as well. How can a born again Christian hold to the kind of positions and policies that he holds to? That was their question. How could that be? It was a conundrum to them. Brothers and sisters in Christ who saw our political leaders in a very different light than you and I see them. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, page 1137, if you're using... A pew Bible. 
I've entitled our studies in this great chapter, and there will be more than one. So it is with an S, studies. Our studies in this great chapter, a manifesto for Christian citizenship. A manifesto for Christian citizenship. A manifesto is a declaration of first principles, basic foundational beliefs and ideas. And the Apostle Paul gives to us here in this chapter some very important first principles that we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ must emulate and embrace and indeed base our political theory and understandings upon. In preparation for these messages, and there is much more preparation to go, I have already been challenged in my own presuppositions. I grew up in a very conservative political home. Politics was the dinner conversation. I have very strong opinions with regard to politics and economics. But I am endeavoring, as I read the Word of God, to let it sift what I believe, to separate out that which the Bible requires of me and that which is optional for me. And so as I come to you over these next weeks, I will do my best to peel aside the U.S. encrustments of Christianity and let us look at the text and let the text speak to us clearly, directly, and honestly. In this particular chapter of Romans 13, Paul clearly addresses how we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ should live as citizens of both heaven and earth. In our studies together, it is my intention to ask and answer some questions that are a pressing concern, at least on the minds of some of you. And I know this because of emails I've been receiving, questions that I've been having over the, well, it's no longer over a cup of coffee. That is another story, but over the water fountain. Yes, I am on a caffeine fast and doing well, I might admit, by the grace of God. Anyway, as we... <laughs> as we go into this chapter together... We'll clearly look, I hope, to clearly look at what the Apostle Paul says, but I also want to bring it down to a practical level, and I want to address some questions along the way. Questions such as, what role can or should we as Christians play in government and politics? What if a government abuses its authority and punishes good and rewards evil? What does that mean for us? How far can or should a Christian go in opposing unrighteous actions by their government? What is civil disobedience and is it permitted by Scripture? Does a Christian have a right of self-defense? What are the dangers of wrapping the Bible in the American flag. These are some of the issues that as we examine this text together that I hope to be able to address to stimulate me and you 
that we might think biblically in a world that is all mixed up. One topic I will not cover. I will tell it to you right now. One topic I will not cover is the legitimacy of the American Revolution. Okay? I'm not going to cover it. Sorry. I do not feel qualified to deal with this issue. My opinion, there is a lot of heat and not much light that is shed on that topic. People have very strong opinions. I don't feel personally qualified to judge the actions of a people that lived 235 years ago. I don't know their motives. I can't read their hearts. And I do not know and I do not intend to render a judgment on what they did. What they did, they answer to God for, not to me. Let me do say this about them, though, that they are products of their own time, just like you and I. They are people of their time. They were driven to some degree by the politics of their own time, by their own educational upbringings and backgrounds, by the the authors they were reading were shaping their thinking. No different than you or I. What's done is done. Here we stand. The great American experiment. Maybe I can illustrate this issue with the following little story. Suppose a man 50 years ago were to divorce his wife for unbiblical reasons, unjustifiable reasons. Suppose further that he were to then marry another woman in violation of the Word of God. The moment he said, I do, they became a lawful marriage in the eyes of God. According to the Scripture, he committed adultery in that particular act. And God forbid it, and he did it anyway. But understand that he does not live the rest of his life committing repeated acts of adultery. His marriage is a lawful marriage. In a similar way, if the foundation of this nation was illegitimate, it matters not. We go forward now with who we are. I don't believe it is a bit of good to try to parse centuries-old history. We are who we are, and we are here today. And God has blessed this nation. And I would suggest His blessing has fallen in spite of who we are and what we have done, and not because of it. This morning, what I want to do with you is to introduce an overview of Paul's discussion of Christian duties here in Romans chapter 13. And I want to do this so that we might begin to take our own civic responsibilities seriously. Romans 13 is not just about our relationship to our government, although that is certainly a strong theme. There is more to the chapter than that. Why did Paul write the 13th chapter of his letter to the Romans? 
What prompted this apostle to pick up his pen and to continue to write as he does in this chapter? You know, many commentators think chapter 13 of Romans is, or at least the first part of it, is out of place. It doesn't belong. It breaks the flow of the argument. Paul is finishing in chapter 12 talking about love. He picks up in verse 8 of chapter 13 with the topic of love again. And they say verses 1 through 7, fine, Pauline discourse, but it doesn't belong there. Somehow it got mixed in. Well, wrong. Wrong. It most certainly belongs here. It most certainly belongs here. It is not out of place at all. Let me show you that by just briefly reviewing with you the flow of Paul's letter to the Romans. I think it's worth it to take a couple of minutes and just back up to see where we have come. Paul begins his letter to the church at Rome, his most comprehensive, his most systematic presentation of what he calls his gospel. And he lays it out in a very detailed and orderly fashion. Like an attorney building his case, he lays precept upon precept, argument upon argument. And he begins by calling all of humanity before the bar of God's justice. And thus Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 through all the way to chapter 3 verse 20 could be summed up under the word condemnation condemnation the gentile world is in a tailspin down the drain romans 1 tells us but you moral and religious types don't sit on your laurels for you is guilty you're as just as guilty romans chapter 2 says for you do the same things that you condemn in them Chapter 3, he pulls it all together, the first part of chapter 3. And he says, there is none righteous, no, not how many? No, not one. Jew, Gentile, male, female, boy, girl, we're all guilty before the bar of God's justice. We are helpless and hopeless without God. Beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3 and running through chapter 5, verse 21 is the great topic of justification. How is a sinner made right before a holy God? What hope is there? How can God be both just and justifier of the one who is so condemned? There we come to understand that we are justified by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God sent His own Son to be the propitiation for our sin, that God poured out on Him the wrath that was justly due for us, and that by faith, that great gift becomes ours. We are wrapped in the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We become justified in the sight of God. Well, how can... We who are then justified, how come we still sin? And what do we do about it? How do we break free from the curse? How is it we who are justified continue to live as if we're not? Paul takes up these issues in chapter 6 and beginning in verse 1 and runs all the way through chapter 8 and verse 39. 
And he speaks there about sanctification, his third great topic of his gospel. That is, how can we be freed from the power of sin? The great hymn writer says he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the captive free. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8. He finishes at the end of 8 with his soaring doxology where he says, right, then nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah, let's go for it. And the thoughtful person says, now wait a minute. Wait a minute here. What about Israel? I mean, you made all kinds of promises to them. And look at them. They haven't received their Messiah. They are cut off from God. They are hostile to the new covenant. What about Israel? What kind of God are you when you can't keep your promises to Israel? What makes us think you'll keep your promises to us? Paul, if you want me to get on board the train that says nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, you need to answer the question about Israel. Paul says, fair enough. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans deal with the problem of Israel. Paul addresses how is it that the ancient people of God could be now cast aside? And is the casting aside permanent? Or is there a future for this nation? Of course, we know how chapter 11 turns out, don't we? They were cast aside, chapter 9, because of the predestined plan of God. Chapter 10, they were cast aside because of their own hard-heartedness in rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeking to establish their own works-based righteousness. Chapter 11, you Gentiles, you better not be arrogant. Because God is going to recover His people and reestablish them in their ancient homeland someday. This is Paul's gospel. Restoration. Restoration. Condemnation. Justification. Sanctification. Restoration. And finally, transformation. Beginning in chapter 12. Transformation. Paul, in light of this great gospel, how shall we now live? What should our life look like? So Paul begins to detail that for us, doesn't he? Chapter 12, he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind, by preaching the gospel to yourself, that your mind might be renewed. That is, that you might think God's thoughts after him, because as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. As we preach the gospel to ourselves, we begin to think like God thinks. And as we think like God thinks, our behaviors begin to emulate the behaviors of Christ, and it transforms our lives. Paul says that. You may prove what the will of God is. Verse 2, that which is good 
and acceptable, perfect. Okay, Paul, what does that look like? Why don't you you put a little flesh on that for me? How about a little bit of shoe leather, Paul? Tell me what does it look like to live a transformed life in a broken, bent, and fallen world? Be happy to. Beginning in verse 9. Beginning in verse 9, chapter 12. We're to live a life of love. Let love be, how? Sincere, without hypocrisy. It's all about love. It's living for love. First inside the church. And then with those outside the church. This is what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God for your life looks like. Do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Here it is. God's will for you and for me as followers of Jesus Christ is to live a transformed life. In the power of my own flesh and strength, pulling myself up by my bootstraps? Absolutely not. But in full dependence upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I marinate and meditate in this life-transforming gospel, lo and behold, I actually begin to love people. Like Christ loved people. Not perfectly. But I'm making progress. And so are you. It's amazing to me as Paul works through verses 9 through 21. That he finishes with some of what are the most challenging verses to be found. These verses hearken back to the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus makes those outrageous and radical statements about how we are to interact with the unbelieving world. And he puts upon us the burden of non-retaliation. That is, when we are personally insulted, personally affronted, personally injured, personally abused, we are to respond in love. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. And Paul picks it up here. Verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, verse 18, be at peace with all men. Verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Verse 21. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are never to avenge ourselves personally upon our enemies. Never. Never. Beloved, listen to me in this. This gospel ethic was as radical then as it is now. Don't think somehow that the early believers, when they heard this, they thought, oh, of course, that's easy. (laughs) They are people. They were people like you and I with all the passions of fallen humanity to deal with. This was radical for them, just as radical as it is for me and for you today. Just like we struggle with it, they struggled with it. Both they and us need massive quantities of the grace of God to even begin to live this kind of a life. This is a radical life. 
This is a life only possible, only attributable to the transforming grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you have no hope. And beloved, contextually, it is this radical demand that necessitates Paul turn his attention in chapter 13, the beginning of it, to the issue of government. It is this radical ethic, this divine demand that helps explain why Paul must now deal with what is our relationship to our governing authorities. I think there are at least three reasons that explain the early part of chapter 13. One, as I say, springs directly out of the context of what has been said before it in chapter 12. And by the way, you know this, right? Chapter breaks, later edition. You would be reading along, you would hear this outrageous, radical command for a new kind of ethic with relation to the world, that is, that we are not to take revenge... We are to leave it in the hands of God. We are to be at peace with all men. We're not to respond in kind to evil. And the thoughts that are going through your mind are, yeah, right. If we do that, then the creeps are going to take over the world. All the evildoers. If we sit passively by and do nothing about it, evil will reign supreme. If good men do nothing, right? then evil will have nothing to hold it back. Wrong. Wrong. Government is to hold it back, Paul says. It is the role of government to restrain evil in a society. It is God's gift to all societies. And he begins to undertake that topic here. A second reason why I believe he addresses the issue of government here beyond just the the context and the contextual connection between our personal abhorrence to retaliation is is what's going on in the world of the first century. The letter of the Romans was written probably around A.D. 56. A.D. 56. And it was addressed to believers living in the heart of the Roman imperial system. They are right there in Rome. Beyond that, the church is comprised of Gentiles and Jews. Historically, the Jews hated their Roman overlords. There was absolutely no love loss between the Jews and the Romans. And in fact, by this time in history, the winds of rebellion were swirling all around the land of Palestine. It would be less than a decade to the beginning of the Jewish wars, AD 66, when in open rebellion, the Jewish people sought to deliver themselves from their Roman overlords and resulting in the eventual destruction of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the crucifixion of over a million men and women. I believe Paul could could read the times. He could sense what was going on. I mean, if we're serving Jesus and He is our King, and He has a coming kingdom, 
then what in the world are we doing under this Roman authority who we hate? And by the way, we don't like paying their taxes either. Paul says you need to know how you are to relate to this government. And by the way, I believe the message got through because the Christian church, by and large, did not join in the Jewish rebellion and was thus preserved from extinction. Third reason. I believe Paul addresses the topic here is because it is the natural outgrowth of a gospel-transformed life. The gospel transforms not just a compartment of our life, not just a piece of our life, but it transforms our entire being. It's a transformation of our thinking, not just in one area, but in all aspects of life. It covers every single area that we are involved in. The gospel touches everything. And it, it included in that is our civic responsibility, our relationship to the governing authorities that are over us. The gospel has something to say about this. And so Paul says it to us here. Let me say to you, the government is like marriage. It's like marriage, and it's like marriage in this way. It is a, it is a manifestation of God's common grace. And it is designed for the benefit of mankind. Think with me back to the history of the people of Israel and to the book of Judges. And think about the recurring theme of the book of Judges. There is a refrain that is repeated over and over and over in the book of Judges. Do you remember what it is? Now there was no, well before that, every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no what? king in Israel. Beloved, anarchy is not good, if I can just say it that way. Furthermore, it is a hindrance to the spread of the gospel. And so government is like marriage in that sense. It is a manifestation of God's common grace. Now, like marriage, it can be badly disfigured by human sin. There's no question about that. But even in its disfigured state, it is nonetheless better to have a bent and twisted government than no government at all. It is God's revealed will for all societies. One Bible commentator wrote the following, and I quote, Any government is preferable to anarchy. Just as poorly enforced marriage laws are better than none. It's better to have a bad government than no government at all. And we need to remember that. It's also important, just setting context here, to remember that Paul is writing, as I said, to a church located in the, in the city of Rome. That would be like a church in Washington, D.C. It is in the shadow of the imperial power of the greatest empire of the world of its day. The Roman Empire. Paul is not attempting here to write a treatise on Christian governmental theory. All that can be said cannot be said from this text alone. And so necessarily, as we're going through this, 
I will be bringing another text to bear. Paul's not writing a treatise on Christian governmental theory. But he is addressing the practical outworking of the gospel in the area of citizenship. And so there's much to be said. Beyond that, remember this. The early church was made up primarily of lower caste. They were slaves. They were the poor. The high, the mighty, the noble, the wealthy, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you are not. Rome was an ancient civilization by this time. Its patterns were old and well-established. Its cultural order had been built in for centuries. The thought of challenging it would not even occur to most people. And certainly the Christian church would have never gotten off the ground if the teaching of the gospel was overthrow Rome. Overthrow Rome. In fact, when Jesus was confronted with Pontius Pilate, he said, my kingdom is what? Not of this world, because if it was of this world, my my disciples would be here fighting to deliver me. The Christian church was never designed to overthrow the levers of government. It is designed to move in and among societies with all styles of government. From despotic dictators to free-flowing democracies and to everything in between. It is the genius of our missionary God that would enable us to be able to take the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to everywhere, any place, any time, and move into the society and live and operate in that society and address the hearts of people one-on-one with the requirements of Jesus Christ. And not need to get drawn into the political hassles of any one society. It's brilliant. It's ingenious. It's of God. I suppose it's time to read the text. It is time. Vincent, you know what this means. This is part 1A. (laughs) That's what it means. A manifesto. A manifesto for Christian citizenship. It begins in verses 1 through 7 with a summary statement for you called, or basically, value your government. Value your government. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. 
for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Value your government. Next. Love your neighbor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Love your neighbor. Third, restrain your flesh. Restrain your flesh. And this do knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Restrain your flesh, Paul says. A manifesto for Christian citizenship. Value your government. Love your neighbor. Restrain your flesh. For as you do these things, you will demonstrate to all who look on a transformed life. They will come to you and they will say, what makes you so different? I have never met anybody like you. 
of all the employees that we work with, you stand out. What is it with you? Or a family member who says, man, have you changed? I came here and saw you baptized. And I didn't know what it all meant. But I've been watching your life now for the last couple of years. And man, have you changed. You are respectful. You are humble. You are loving. You are kind. What is going on? Wow. Is that a gospel preaching opportunity, Jim? What do you think? Sounds like one, doesn't it? Let me tell you what has changed me. Let me explain to you why I live like I do. Let me tell you about my Savior, Jesus Christ. And begin to preach the gospel. Beloved, if we preach only with our mouth and our lives live in contradiction to the message, it's like so much blah, blah, blah. But when we're living a transformed life that puts the message of redemption on display, not perfectly, none of us live perfectly. We all mess up, we all fall, we all stumble, we all sin. But Christians repent and they seek forgiveness and they seek to make it right and then they move on. And that is a gospel preaching opportunity. Don't think that because it worked, you messed up and you sinned, you lost your temper and you, you yelled at one of your co-workers that somehow you have no gospel witness. Not at all. That's a great gospel witnessing opportunity. I can't think of a better one, depending how you handle it. Beloved, how we relate to our government, in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions, speak volumes about our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and how much transformation has actually occurred. This is a great platform for gospel preaching a great platform the early church was not a threat to the empire of rome they were not seeking to overturn it they were seeking to infiltrate it and integrate the gospel message into the highways and byways of life we are not seeking to overturn any government either. We are not subversives. At least not in the sense that the, the unbelieving world sees it. We're looking to change people's hearts one at a time through the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had the best of intentions to get through verse 1 this morning. Well, we'll just save that for next time. Let me give you something to take away here with, to think about. Does your family or your co-workers, when they think of you and your attitude towards government and politics, 
Do they think of you in terms of political parties? Or do they think of you in terms of your commitment to a Savior? Which comes to their mind? And why? Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, this is going to be challenging for us, O oh Lord. Challenging because we are steeped in our own culture. Challenging because we care very deeply about some of the immense and catalytic social issues that are going on. Our Father, we see to some degree, our very way of life being changed. You know, Lord, we're having trouble separating that which is our divine rights from that which is merely a blessing and a privilege. Oh Lord, we have a hard time separating our Christianity from our own political theories. We have a hard time seeing the gospel outside of the eyes of 21st century Western affluent American Christians. Our Father, we have a hard time receiving the command of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are to take an attitude of non-retaliation for those who personally affront us or seek to do us harm. Oh Lord, there is much in our being that rises up and rebels. There is much within us that says, I have my rights. There is much within us that wants to create, oh Lord, if we would be so honest to admit it, a kingdom here on earth. Oh Father, a fool's mission to be sure. O oh Lord, lift our eyes. Get us up and off the horizontal. O oh Lord, help us to recognize our status as aliens and wanderers. Citizens of the United States, yes, but citizens of, of heaven. O oh Lord, help us to learn the balance that we see in the life of the Apostle Paul, a citizen of Rome and yet a citizen of glory. Glory. 